Well, good morning all. That's a tough act to follow, listening to that great message about the book of Revelation. Sorry I missed the first couple of minutes, bro. I realize that uh, there's always interesting things when you drive through Los Angeles. So I, I had to actually give another talk this morning up in, in Beverly Hills, and uh, everything was going well until there was someone filming a movie on the highway as we were moving down the highway with about a hundred motorcycles, so it was an interesting, I thought at first it was a funeral procession, you know, thinking of, in simplicity with everyone's blinkers on, but of course it turned out to be a movie, so hopefully I'm not in a biker movie anytime soon. <laughs> if I am, it was a complete accident. <laughs> Let's turn our Bibles, please, to John chapter 1, John chapter 1. While we're turning there, just quickly by way of review, and perhaps if there were some who were not here last night, we uh, have embarked on a study that I mentioned last night I enjoyed about a decade ago and I've had the privilege of going back to it and restudying it and that's the beauty of God's word. You restudy things and you find things you hadn't seen before. I think it was Spurgeon actually who said it's not a really good sermon until you've preached it 40 times. I, I don't think I could preach the same sermon twice. I always have differences and variations in it but we've been enjoying this concept that the Lord Jesus is greater than all. Now it's great to have a thesis that the whole crowd believes before you get going. So I feel like I'm a lawyer trying to make the case in front of the jury, but I already know the verdict. <laughs> but what I'm trying to do is to, through the words of the Gospel of John, illustrate what the Lord has already illustrated, is that unequivocally, he is greater than all. That all the mouths would be stopped of those who would seek to compare him to anyone else. In fact, any time the Lord Jesus, if someone has tried to compare the Lord Jesus or put him on a, on, a, on a sphere with others, the Lord has made it very clear that's not the case. We know that, of course, even for the Mount of Transfiguration, don't we? When Peter tried, you know, and, and, and we, we laud Peter's concept or effort, you know, to think, oh, let, let's, let's elevate Moses and Elijah and the Lord Jesus and let, let's build three booths for them. All of a sudden, Moses and Elijah are removed from the picture. God the Father speaks, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, hear ye him. Because at the end of the day, no disrespect to Moses and Elijah, they are not even in the same category. And that's what I'm hoping to do with you, is to come to have you conclude that the Lord Jesus is absolutely in his own category, and in doing so, he deserves, as we've just been hearing, the full commitment and devotion of our hearts to him. And as we love him, we find that we can serve him more fully. You know, it's marvelous, isn't it? He's not the kind of God that comes along and says, you're going to do it, and you're going to serve me, and you're going to like it while you do it, and sort of force the way. Is that, is that how we're going to force you into submission today and to force you into servanthood? No. Like the lion, that when John looked up, he saw a lamb. That's indeed what arrested his soul. Yes, on the one hand, I, I'm... I'm charged almost by the truth that my king is the lion of the tribe of Judah, that no one can stand against him. But what drew my heart to the Lord Jesus was not so much that he was the king of kings and lord of lords, but that he was the lamb freshly slain who paid for my sin. Every single one of them, and I've said this even several times from this pulpit, but you try and count up all of the sins you've ever committed. It is literally an innumerable number of sins, and he bore every single one of them in his body on the tree. So to prove this theory that the Lord Jesus is greater than all, we're just systematically looking at the characters from the Old Testament that are mentioned in the Gospel of John. Hopefully you, you, you believe with me that they're mentioned explicitly to demonstrate that the Lord Jesus is greater. They're not just mentioned in passing or for historical filler. You know, there's no filler in this book, right? You know, you read things, you read books, or you read even a newspaper article, and even though everything, as I mentioned last night, we try and cut to the chase when we're reporting things, there's always filler. You know, there's cute background information. That's not the scripture. Even if the scripture tells us about where things happen and the names of people, and sometimes you wonder... Uh, you know, we were, as I mentioned, we're doing a, a series in the Old Testament books of the Bible. We talked about Ezra uh, the other day at our assembly. You know, there's a big part of the book of Ezra that's just a list of names. And you might think, really? I mean, wh 
why, Lord? Why are you giving us all these names? Well, there's reason for that. Everything is there for a purpose and a reason. And so when, as we just studied last night, Moses, the most frequently mentioned Old Testament character in the Gospel of John, he's not mentioned just in passing. He's mentioned every one of those 18 times to unequivocally prove to us that the Lord Jesus is greater than Moses. For the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And we saw that over and over again. We couldn't go through all of those references, but we put them into the categories of the greatness of, of Moses. You remember, number one, that he delivered them out of Egypt. Number two, that he was a great leader in the wilderness. And in doing that, he did three things. He, fed, he directed them against idolatry, he fed them, and he healed them. You want to be an elder that the Lord is going to use in your assembly? Those three things should characterize your ministry. That you're a leader that directs to the person of Christ, that feeds the people of God, and heals the people of God. Is that not what, what the Lord even said to Peter? Feed my sheep. It's kind of hard to be a shepherd or an under-shepherd to the good great chief shepherd and not be a feeder and not be one that feeds. And the Lord help us, and we know that the Lord calls different uh, leaders in different ways, but when you look in the context of an assembly uh, where the Lord has, has, has designed this beautiful plan of a, a multiple group of individuals who are leading that the scripture describes as elders, that, uh, gentlemen, if you're here and you're an elder in this assembly or others, we pray for you, and we pray that those three aspects, not the only three, but those three aspects of your ministry are in good balance, that you're directing, that you're feeding, and that you're healing, that you're involved in the care of the broken. You know, the body is built in a way that I can have pain in the, my tiny little pinky here, but somehow I feel it all over. And this, the Bible tells us this, the church is like that. When one person suffers, the whole suffers. And if that's not the case, then there's a problem. The body's not as united as it should be if we don't all suffer when one of us suffers. And we don't all rejoice when one of us rejoices. And the Lord help us uh, to be more like that. But we said, so number one, he delivered them from Egypt. Number two, he's a leader, leader in the wilderness. Number three, he provided the law. As we heard earlier, often his name is almost synonymous with the law. Because he was the one who delivered not just the Ten Commandments, but really was the vehicle by which the Lord brought the law to us. And we saw that the law was great and the law was spiritual, but it was only our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It was only a diagnostic tool to demonstrate how absolutely sinful we are. You want a good, well-reasoned lawyer argument? You go to the first several chapters of the book of Romans and see how, again, almost in legal fashion, standing before a jury, the, the book of Romans is designed to show to you and I unequivocally that we're sinners. Now, the more honest you are, the less of it you need to read. Now, I'm not telling you you shouldn't read the book of Romans, but, you know, when we start saying to people, are they sinners? And that's often a big challenge, isn't it? You know, you can't get saved until you realize you're lost. You can't be a believer until you come to realize that you're an unbeliever. And I don't know about your experiences with your friends or colleagues or family members, but often it's a greater battle to get through step one before step two. Because people say, what do you mean, unbeliever? I've always believed in God. I believe in God since I was a kid. I've always trusted God. It's not that simple, is it? Until we come to fully realize that each one of us individually have a great chasm between us and God because of our sin. That chasm can't be filled. And so we saw that Moses brought indeed that law, and the law came by Moses, but praise God, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Because if you think you can get to heaven or that you can get saved by keeping the law, you're wrong. You make one mistake, you slip up once, done as if you've offended in every point. It's an interesting legal structure, right? It's like if you commit one crime, it's as if you've committed them all. That's the magnitude and severity and seriousness of sin. And then finally, the fourth aspect of uh, uh, Moses' greatness, of course, was that he delivered them to the promised land. But even in that, sadly, he didn't quite get them there. 
got them right to the cusp. But we have a Savior, praise God, who doesn't just mostly take us there. He brings us home. Well, today, we want to think about three individuals in the time that we have, and we'll see how we'll, we'll be able to divide it up a little bit. I want to start this morning with Elijah. So let's read here. We'll talk about Elijah, and then later David and Abraham. So John 1 and verse 19. This is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou, here it is, Elijah? And he said, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he said, No. And they said unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as uh, said the prophet Isaiah. And they, um, and they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou not be that Christ, nor Elijah, neither that prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But there standeth one among you, whom ye know not, he it is, who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoe latchet I'm not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come, baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and an abode on him, and I knew him not. But he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending, and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bare record that this is the Son of God. And then we'll deviate once out of the, book, of the book of John. Just turn with me for a moment to Matthew 17. Just read a few verses there that are, are pertinent to our discussion. Matthew 17. Interestingly, right at the time of the Mount of Transfiguration that I mentioned, when Moses and Elijah uh, appeared with the Lord Jesus... And um, the, the, uh, the Lord, um, God the Father, removed Moses and Elijah and, and told them to listen to the Lord Jesus. But cutting in just a couple of verses later, or the next verse really, so verse 8 for connection of Matthew 17. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only, which is a beautiful thought, uh, that they could only see him. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them saying, tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen from the dead. His disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elijah must come first? So they're struggling around this notion that how could the Messiah be here now if Elijah had not come yet, based on prophecy? And Jesus answered and said to them, Elijah truly shall first come and restore all things, but I say unto you that Elijah is come already. And they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed, likewise also, likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. So there's clearly a connection then between John the Baptist and Elijah. It won't take time to read more commentary that the Lord himself gave. You could go uh, to Luke 7, for example, and see how the Lord himself describes John the Baptist as the greatest of all prophets. So in keeping with our sort of balcony view of the superiority of Christ, if you've come to believe with me already that he's greater than Moses and all that Moses represented in the law, it's not uh, uh, unreasonable then or it's particularly logical then that the next comparator should be the greatest prophet. If we're going to take the, 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 the key leadership positions or the people whom they esteem the most highly in the Jewish faith. Now we'd say, well, Moses clearly, and now Elijah, the greatest of prophets. And as we'll see later, the greatest of kings, David, and the father of the nation, Abraham. But here for Elijah, 
thought of uh, as, as the, in many respects, the greatest of all prophets. It was no surprise that when those two appeared with the Lord Jesus, the Mount Transfiguration, it was Moses and Elijah. You know, and when, when we think of the, the two walking on the road to Emmaus, remember when the, the text describes the Lord Jesus himself expounding of himself, it says, and beginning at Moses and all of the prophets. So there's a natural addition between Moses plus the prophets. So who's the greatest of those prophets? Well, we could make a very strong argument that is Elijah, and indeed John the Baptist came as the greatest of prophets in the spirit of Elijah. And they have similarities between the two of them, don't they? Not just because of their interesting diet, not just because they come out of the wilderness. They're a little bit on the rough side too, you know. They weren't, they weren't known for their sort of soft, gentle political correctness, as it were, as we're going to see with Elijah in a moment. And that's not to make fun of them, but it's to realize that these were ones, these were voices crying in the wilderness. Which means to say they were loud where there was nobody else. And they were uniquely appointed to wake up the nation around them and to prepare the way the nation around them for who was to come. As a complete side um, note, uh, as a devotional thought, this concept of someone going before someone else is a biblical principle that is often described as the forerunner. Um, it comes to us, the concept comes to us in the Old Testament and is only referred to once in the New Testament. Ironically and paradoxically, speaking of the Lord Jesus as the forerunner. I don't know if I ever reiterated the story once, once back in the days when we lived up in the land of maple syrup up in Canada. Um, I was flying uh, to, I think, Asia once, and I met this gentleman who worked for the Canadian government who was literally a forerunner. He was a modern-day forerunner. So he was part of the delegation who would precede the prime minister... You have the same system here in the United States, but prior to a president going to a distant country, there's a delegation that always goes ahead and kind of prepares the way. You know, and not just the ones who, you know, do the security check in the hotel rooms, but the ones who go and get greeted, who are received by that country, they um, are, are taken care of, they plan out where the things are going to happen. They basically plan and establish the arrival of that uh, important individual, prime minister, president, uh, statesman, whomever. And it was really interesting to talk to this man about how, what, what he did, you know? I mean, you wouldn't have really known him, even if you were into Canadian politics, or I'm sure you wouldn't know who the forerunners are down here. They don't have high profile. They're not particularly well known, but they go ahead and they prepare that way. And, and the emphasis is not so much, of course, on the forerunner, but the person who's coming thereafter. So you think the person who's coming thereafter is the important one. How is it that the Lord Jesus is my forerunner? says that forerunner, that one, he has entered into heaven. He has prepared the way for me. Do you have any sense of how valued you are to God? I think we lose that in the day in which we live with the religions of the world that want to claim how one can achieve higherness and intelligence and peace and comfort. And people lose the reality that our Lord loves and values us infinitely more than we could even value ourselves. People think that God is a God who doesn't really care, just wants to rain down some fire and brimstone here and there and is kind of into destroying things and throwing out his wrath. The opposite is true. He made you in his image. He cares for you. He so values a single life. The sanctity of life is not something we just hold to for, for a purpose or, or a, a rallying point. We do it because God loves the individual. How can we have six or whatever it is, billion people on the planet Sometimes you feel like you're just in a sea of people. But let me reassure you today that God loves you. He doesn't love you 
in just the generic sense that he loves everybody, he loves you as an individual. Larry quoted that verse last night, the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So who am I that the Lord Jesus would be my forerunner and prepare the way? Can you imagine? Imagine that uh, if the president arrives tomorrow or today in, 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 a, in, a, in a, another country and, and they stand there, whether it's at the tarmac or stand there at the reception hall, and they announce, President of the United States. And he comes forward. Someday you and I will get to heaven. And they'll declare your name. You're so valuable to the Lord that he has personally prepared the way for you. He's not really on our agenda, but have I convinced you that a greater than John the Baptist is here? That's how much he loves you. Whither our forerunner has gone. When the scripture uses words, it uses them so precisely. And that moves me every time I think of it. For what were we that thou on us such love shouldst ever pour, we sometimes sing. Let me tell you what you are. You're valuable to God. Intensely valuable. And so John the Baptist here is the one, as I say, paving the way. And in the text we saw, when they came to ask him who he was, he said, look, look, I'm not it. Like, I can't, I'm not even worthy to unlatch the shoe of the person I'm telling you about. What tremendous humility. And the Lord help us to be more like that. I must decrease that he might increase. And you want leadership even in your own assembly, do you not? Where the focus is on the head of the church, not the parts of the body. I mean, I even pray for that when I come to speak. I want people... When they walk out of a message like this, genuinely, not to say, oh, that was a great message or a great speaker. I want them to be pointed to the Lord Jesus. Joe who? Right? It's really about him, isn't it? And so John the Baptist does this so beautifully to us that he was constantly, and ultimately, you saw what happened. Or you know the story, perhaps. He was beheaded for what he did for the Lord. He didn't really have a glorious beginning out there in the wilderness eating his locusts. I mean, I have a pretty hearty appetite. I travel the world, and I have this thing where wherever I go, I want to eat what the locals eat. I did a conference once in a, in a fairly remote part of Malaysia, and there's still to this day about a day or two of food that I really don't know what it was. And that's no disrespect to Malaysia, but it was just different. I was like, is that... Meat or fish or vegetable. I'm not sure what that is, but give it to me. And it was great. And I loved it. I, I can eat just about anything. I have not yet had locusts. That's something that's not <clears throat> been, even if you dip, dip them in honey, maybe that's how he, how he, you know, you put anything in honey, maybe it's edible. But I mean, he had a pretty intense and rough background. And he had a tragic ending. But oh, how he served the Lord. He played a role, that voice crying in the wilderness that no one else could play. And indeed he was, if you will, coming in the spirit of Elijah. Well, could, could we say that today there's a greater than Elijah? Well, yes. And let me prove it to you. Seven things that I think are fantastic about Elijah. Number one, his personality. You know, much like John the Baptist, Elijah was not... Um, warm and fuzzy. I mean, there are times where he was, right? He raised a little boy from the dead, and that's fantastic. But I always like to say, notice the first thing that anyone's ever doing in Scripture. It's very often fitting with their long-term trajectory, right? The first thing, um, we'll talk later about David and Saul. I always quote those two because they have an interesting start to their lives. Um, and what's the first thing um, that uh, we find Elijah doing? Is the Lord calls him to go stand in front of King Ahab, pretty powerful king. And he walks and he says, all right, no rain until I tell you so. Thank you, sir. And he walked out. Excuse me? Like there's no this, oh, great king. I have a message for you from the Lord. I, in fact, one of these days, I want to do a series on prophets who confront kings. 
because um, there's some interesting stories here. Some of the judges, some of the prophets, there's some pretty, some of them come with uh, pointed messages, as you might know. But um, here he comes to the king. It wasn't a long sermon. It was like, it ain't going to rain. Right? And it was fitting with Elijah's uh, modality because Elijah, as, as a harsh prophet, so let's say in his personality, he was a little bit on the harsh side. We see cataclysmic things happen with him. Look at all, the, all of the elements that are associated with Elijah. Rain and lack of rain. Fire coming down from heaven. Mountains quaking. Shaking of the earth. Uh, whirlwinds. Uh, I mean, it's, it's really, he's a pretty dramatic guy. There was a lot of, um, of uh, drama, if we will, associated with Elijah. But it was important, wasn't it? Because he had to, if you will, shake things up a little bit with Ahab. They had to see that their source of water didn't come because they were smart kings and knew how to build reserves. You know, we can have the best. Look, I live in Arizona, right? We're very good at squandering water from other places, <coughs> Colorado River. <coughs> but, um, we, um, but we're all still absolutely and utterly dependent on the weather, aren't we? And I don't want to get too philosophical about it, but... It is striking at times to realize with all of our sophistication, with all of our technology, with all of the infrastructure we build, and it's not to, to in any way minimize the severity of these horrific tragedies we've seen over the last few years, but isn't it striking that the earth just flexes its muscle for a second, just stretches out for a moment. And we have these massive earthquakes and tsunamis and storms and tornadoes that cripple us. I mean, we are still a drop in the bucket compared to this planet. And so Elijah is associated with that, and I think for good purpose, because he spoke on the behalf of God. He didn't just say, because of me, he says, I speak on the behalf of the God of Israel, but until my word says it, you're not getting any water. And sure enough, later on when he comes back to the king, the king says to him, oh, you're the one that's troubling Israel. And what does Elijah say? Well, with respect, uh, your, ma uh, my, your majesty, uh, this was a directive from God. He's like, no, you're the one troubling Israel. He was, he was pretty straight up, wasn't he? And there are things that he did that were quite in keeping with that harsh personality. You may remember that time when uh, he called on fire from heaven, not just the prophets of Baal, we'll get to that in a moment, to come and consume 50 people. Like that. And that must have been a well-known event in the Old Testament because the disciples referred to it. When the disciples got onto a little bit of a, I'm careful how I say it, but maybe a little bit of a power trip, and when there were people that were rejecting what the Lord wanted to say and do, they come to the Lord, Lord, should we call down fire like in the days of Elijah? You know, they're thinking, wow, we're going to get power now. We can do this. Do you want us to call down fire from heaven? Oh, how gracious. Let's just look at that. I think it's Luke, Luke 9. It's, it's a beautiful little statement there. It's a it, it, here um, talking about these Samaritans. Verse fifty-three of Luke nine. And they did not receive him, because his face was though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, "Lord, wilt thou that we should command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elijah did?" I mean, these are almost like, you know, that, that, that they picture in the cartoons, a little dog jumping around. Should we do this? Do you want to do this, boss? Do you want to do this, boss? But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. And this is, of course, not in any way dis disrespectful to Elijah, but a greater than Elijah is here. Aren't you thankful that when the Lord could have called down fire from heaven to consume you because of your rejection of Christ, he didn't? The Son of Man has not come to destroy, but to save. How marvelous. 
The Lord indeed had all the power of Elijah and more. But what tremendous restraint he showed. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. Oh, the Lord used his judgment when he should have. He overturned those tables, didn't he? When they were selling and trading in the name of the Lord. How thankful we are that he overturned the tables and not overturned people. How kind and gentle he was. Even to those who wanted to kill him. He was gentle with them, wasn't he? Culminating even in his dialogue with Pilate. And Pilate says, know you not that I have power over you? Really? I mean, you're looking at the God Almighty and you say, I have power over you? How gracious that the Lord didn't extinguish him at that moment. Oh, greater than Elijah's here. He could have called down fire from heaven. But thankfully, he didn't call down fire on you and I. Number two, great feature of Elijah, his dependence on God. It was striking to me that the Lord says, all right, you go to Ahab, you tell him it's not going to rain until you speak again, and then uh, run. (laughs) Like literally, he's like, you might want to go now. Right? Ahab was not going to be particularly happy. This series that I'm going to think about doing of, of prophets or, or uh, men and women of God who approached kings, there was a lot of running involved, right? Sort of say your piece and then leave, right? And so, they, so he, he runs and the Lord sends him down to a brook where the birds are feeding him and he's got water. I mean, he's absolutely dependent, Right? Like some of us that can barely cook. Actually, I'm, I'm not so bad. I, we love having uh, the Lord's people over, as the Kranzes and the Stratmans know. We try every quarter to have our whole assembly over for dinner. And uh, we just love preparing food for the people of God. There's something, as I've often said, I think even from this pulpit, there's something unique about food and fellowship. Like they're very much connected in the scriptures. Right? And if Abraham can prepare food for the Lord Jesus, then I can prepare food for you. So anytime you're in Scottsdale, come on over. We'll, we'll make you some food. But he was in a place where he could not prepare food, right? He didn't have the resources for it. There was no refrigerator. There was no stovetop. I mean, there's nothing that he could do. And he was dependent on the Lord. And yet, the Lord dries up the brook. You see, you be careful what you preach about because you'll face it. But you be careful what we believe because if you really believe something, The Lord is going to test you on that principle and truth. I believe, like I said to you last night, that what the world has to offer us is nothing compared to what the Lord has to offer. We'll be challenged with that. There's no doubt. You think Elijah could say, Oh, king, you get no rain, but (laughs) I got my personal brook over here, right? I'm covered. The Lord wanted Elijah to taste of his need to be dependent on the Lord. And so sure enough, he was dependent by sitting there and the brook dries up. So what does he do? He says, okay, well, you know, I'll move you from the brook and I'll send you to this widow's home. And she has got this huge storage facility with um, an inordinate amount of food. So you're good. No. He comes to the widow and she has barely anything left. A little bit of water, a little cruise of oil, enough to make a little cake of some sort, a little potato latke perhaps. And then she and her son were planning to die. But see how the Lord is teaching her the same lesson? What did Elijah tell her? He said, you go and make mine first. He wasn't being arrogant about it. He wasn't being selfish about it. He wanted her to taste of the blessing of what it would be to give up everything she had and then to find the Lord never let the tank run empty. Has God ever asked you for that? To give up what you think you can't give up? Has he ever extracted from you something that you value and consider so precious? Look what he did to Abraham. He asked him to give up his only son. 
grace of God that he didn't take the son. But Abraham was willing to give it up. Why were those widows' two mites so valuable? Why did the Lord stop his disciples to say, well, watch this? He didn't often do that. Do you think those two mites were magical mites, you know? Like magic beans, right? No. They were precious because those were the last two mites she had. Sometimes we might feel generous in giving of the overflow and giving people our leftovers. Sometimes God is going to ask you, Listen to this carefully. Sometimes God is going to ask you for a whole lot more than your leftovers. Trust that he is the source of all. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's not short on resources. But sometimes he wants yours. And when you give him those resources, your time, your energy, your money, your life, your family, he will multiply them in a way that would never have been had before. Can you imagine? I don't want to be too fanciful and pretend what would have happened, but can you imagine if the widow said, sorry, uh, there's another widow down the street. You know, Why don't you go down there? She may well have had that meal with her son and died. But when she gave what she had, the Lord filled the tank over and over. There are great stories like that. I think the little boy and his fishes and his bread fed the whole group a nice sushi lunch, right? Remarkable what God is able to do. So notice that the dependence on God was Elijah's lesson to learn, but he was able to pass on that lesson to that widow and her son as well. And even at the end, you think, wow, she gave it all. She gave up all of her food and she was willing to sacrifice it for this prophet who she likely never had heard of or didn't know. And then the Lord takes this the life of her son. What a great, I mean, what an impossible test. You all know I have two beautiful little daughters. Katie is now seven and Alyssa is soon to be nine. Daddy's girls. I'm in that, you know, daddy is amazing phase. I'm going to milk it until it's over. But, uh, oh, it's so good right now. And um, I cannot genuinely conceive of what it would be to lose one of my girls. What would it have been for this woman to lose her son? Under the very nose of the prophet. I mean, can you imagine? She's like, well, I'm here. Am I doing all the right things? I mean, didn't I give you everything I had? Didn't I house you? Even Elijah himself, Lord, what? What are you doing? So that they could taste of that wonder of the boy coming back to life. And to realize that ultimately, at the end of the day, you and I are absolutely dependent on him. You want to grow in your faith? Learn today that you are utterly dependent on the Lord. You might think you've got skills and abilities, and yes, you've been given them. They're God-given. And use them, but they're God-given. Yes, you can train and learn and study and practice and serve the Lord, and that's fantastic. But the more we realize that we are so dependent on him, the greater opportunity we'll have to serve him. That is a principle that I think is fundamentally clear in the scriptures. You give him all that you have, and he'll give you more. You give him little bits, you'll, you'll keep working with little bits. What are you holding back today? Can I ask you? What is it that's holding you back from genuinely giving? I don't know if it's talking about money. Although that may be part of it. I don't know you. What is it that you're holding back from the Lord that he wants to use? Dependence on God. Time's going quickly. Number three, uh, Elijah's stand against sin. Oh, and of course, by the way, you could say a greater than Elijah's here. Was there anyone more dependent on God than the Lord Jesus himself? I mean, he's a creator of the universe. And the scripture says, the fox have holes, the birds have nests, and the son of man hath nowhere to lay his head. When they needed to eat, he, he took it from the boy. Right? It's not a typical supermarket. Right? The little boy going home, like, that's not who you're going to try and take food from today. And if you are, well, you'll end up in the Claremont Police Department's jail. Right? 
or David will come after you, right? Um, when, when he had to pay taxes, he had to get them from the fish, right? It's almost inconceivable to me that the one who is building mansions for us had nowhere to lay his head. Think of those verses in Scripture. It says, and every man went to his home. The Lord Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. He hadn't genuinely a place to lay his head. A greater than Elijah's here. At number three, Elijah stand against sin. Oh, how much could we say about this? He stood up to the king, as I mentioned. Not to mention one of my favorite stories in the whole of the Bible, as some of you have heard me recount way too many times, uh, Elijah challenging the prophets of Baal. Right? We used to enact it up in Camp Galilee and, uh, and set up this false altar and pour water all over it and the kids didn't realize that the last gallon of water was not water but a flammable substance and uh, we all drew straws as to who had to hang out in the tree and flick the match to try and get the thing. I still have friends of mine that don't have eyebrows but um, you know what an incredible story. He challenges the prophets of Baal. says, how long will you, uh, challenges the people of God, how long will you halt between two opinions? If God is God, let him be God. Living up to his name. We haven't said that yet. What is Elijah? Elijah. Je, Jehovah. Eli, or Elohim. Jehovah is the God. I mean, it's literally a compression of the whole Old Testament into one phrase, Jehovah is the God. Like we could compress the New Testament, Jesus Christ is Lord. Yes, indeed, the Jehovah of the Old Testament is the Lord Jesus of the New. So he says, if God is God, let him be God. And so, as you know the story well, the prophets of Baal came and called on heaven, uh, on, their, on uh, Baal, and nothing happened. By the way, when we did it, the, the prophet, we had Baal as a bale of hay. Isn't that good? couple of eyes in it, a nose and a mouth. It's a little cheesy, but it worked, right? Um, and, and remember, hay is pretty flammable. But anyway, just saying, if you had to do this, <clears throat> not that we're going to do it tonight at the young people's meeting, don't worry, we're not going to have a fire hazard, I promise. But, um, and he challenges them, and, and he, you know the story, I love the details of it, and we haven't time. But those prophets of Baal were made fun of by Elijah. Elijah had to make them realize it was foolishness. Now, maybe your maybe your God's on vacation. Maybe he's going potty. You know? Literally made fun of them. And they kept calling. They cut themselves. They were used to doing that. You serve another God than the Lord Jesus. I tell you, it'll take your physical body from you. You'll suffer physically from it. And at the end of the day, how chilling are the words of Scripture. And there was no voice, nor any that regarded. You can give your life to this world, and at the end of the day, it'll give you nada in return. And then Elijah repairs the altar, calls on the name of the Lord. He's barely finished saying amen, and the fire comes down, consumes the whole thing. It's an amazing story, isn't it? There's Elijah and fire again, right? Do you see the theme? Yeah. Oh, what of our Lord Jesus stand against him? We sometimes say in the story of Elijah, the wrath of God came down and consumed the sacrifice. In the story of our Lord Jesus, the sacrifice consumed the wrath of God. Those flames, they were all born by him so that you and I can go free. Elijah did a great thing that day. In fact, the people responded by basically saying, Elijah, Elijah. They said, Jehovah is the God. Jehovah is the God. Praise God. Today, we come to the cross of Christ and we realize that Jesus Christ is Lord, for he died and was buried and rose again the third day. Time fails us, so let me mention these others. Elijah was great not only because of his personality, his dependence on God, his stand against sin, his prayers. Elijah was a deep man of prayer. There's a lot of times you see him praying. You saw him praying for rain. You saw him praying for fire. You saw him praying for drought. I mean, he was pretty extreme. A lot of elements, a lot of things that um, 
rec that he recognized he couldn't do on his own. No? We often say that. Let's pray for the things that we can't do. Right? Oh, Lord, we'll pray for someone to vacuum the chapel this evening. Please bring someone to vacuum the chapel this evening, Lord. I'm trying to make light of praying, but you know what? Pick up a vacuum and do it, right? Be careful sometimes what we pray for. Do we not sometimes pray for things that we could actually go and do? Or maybe the Lord hasn't called us to do it. I'm not saying that, that, that it's inappropriate to pray that the Lord might send a missionary to an area that we know of is, is necessary. Maybe the Lord's calling you to do it, maybe not. But we pray for the miraculous. Because the Lord will do the miraculous. And that's, a, again, a theme I know I've mentioned here before, but a beautiful theme. But the Lord doesn't expect us to do the miraculous. Often his miracles were surrounded by events where he called on people to do the not miraculous so that he could do the miraculous. Raises Lazarus from the dead and then gets them to take his grave clothes off. He could have raised Lazarus from the dead without grave clothes on, but he wanted them to participate with him. And that's what God wants us to do. And Elijah is the perfect example of that, where he calls on God to do what only God can do, but he remained faithful to what he could do. Oh, and what of the prayers of our Lord Jesus? Can you imagine that the Lord Jesus prays for you? It's one thing for Elijah to pray for fire and drought and rain. And imagine that you're Lord Jesus the greater than Elijah, today is praying for you. Isn't that beautiful when, he's, when he speaks to Peter? Peter, I'm, I pray for you that your faith fail not. He's the advocate. He's the lawyer, if you will. He's the one who's making sure that our salvation can never be lost. And it cannot be lost. I don't know how people read the same Bible I read and think that they can lose their salvation. Because it's now dependent on him, not on me. How beautiful that the Lord Jesus prayed for you today. Do you think about that? Isn't it nice when someone comes to you and says, oh, I prayed for you this week, or we prayed for you at Wednesday night prayer meeting. It encourages you. It warms your heart. Well, let me tell you, the Lord Jesus prayed for you today. Fantastic. Uh, number five, his loneliness. More than just his dependence on God, Elijah had a rough go of things, didn't he? I mean, there he had this great event on the, on the mountain of uh, Mount Carmel, the prophets of Baal, 24 hours later, he would meet even our clinical criteria for depression. Lost his appetite, was sleeping a lot, and was suicidal. I mean, those are things we look for in medicine that speak to us of depression. It's a medical phenomenon. And how gracious that the Lord Jesus sent food, sent comfort, and then sent himself. Some of you have heard me say, I think that angel that visited Elijah when he was alone was none other than the Lord Jesus himself. There are some things you can't delegate to others. There are some things you do yourself. Here the Lord Jesus came and visited with him. We did a series not long ago, or last fall, I guess, at our camp in New Mexico on the appearances of the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament and after his resurrection, and tried to connect them all, to have a link between each of them. That's a ginormous study if you want to do it, but it's a beautiful one. How gracious that the Lord himself came to Elijah and didn't just browbeat him and say, Elijah, come on, dude, didn't you just see what you did yesterday? Wake up. It's not what you do when someone's struggling. The angel touched him and fed him comforted him and commissioned him long before there was any discussion of why didn't you do this or do that. It's remarkable the example the Lord Jesus gives us. Well, if there's anyone who knows loneliness, it's the Lord Jesus. You think Elijah was lonely? You think you're lonely? You quite likely are. We all experience loneliness, some much more than others. Let me tell you that there is one who has experienced loneliness like no one else. And that's why he can help you when you're lonely. That's why he's able to be there when no one else can be. It's something I often pray for. Lord, be to this person 
what no one else can be. He came unto his own, his own received him not. Behold, and be if there any sorrow like unto my sorrow. This is the one who is the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The Lord Jesus is greater than Elijah. And finally, the last two, Elijah's revelation. After the angel had fed him and comforted him, the Lord revealed himself to Elijah. Remember there at the mountain? That still, small voice, which was more than just a calming voice. It was actually a voice of judgment of what was to come. And God empowered him to do something. God doesn't always just come along to us and sort of stroke us and say, you're okay, you're going to be okay, we need that. But then we need a little push. And it was time for him to go and do something again. And the Lord pushed him. So he had a great revelation. We'll talk more about revelation. We discussed it last year. I know revelation and intimacy is a beautiful connection. But what of the revelation of our Lord Jesus? Well, we've been hearing about it from Larry, so I don't have to expand on this point much, do I? greater than Elijah's here. Elijah was only able to be given a small glimpse. The Lord Jesus gives us glimpses of himself every day and ultimately will show himself fully to us. And number seven, finally, a great feature of Elijah's life was his ascension. You remember he's one of the few, very small few people who life, whose life never really ended. The Lord said, I'm just going to take him, right? I, I can't I can't go anymore without having him home. And Elisha was pretty careful to make sure he was nearby because he wanted that double blessing. Elisha's a whole other study, uh, another character study that we could learn a great deal from. But here in that uh, whirlwind that came, in the chariot that he saw, Elijah was taken up into glory. What a fitting end. More fire, right? All these... Uh, uh, movements of elements for the sake of Elijah's ascension. But what of the ascension of our Lord Jesus? A greater than Elijah's here. Oh yes, there were a few angels and some disciples that witnessed it there in the early part of the book of Acts. But he'll come again. He'll meet us in the clouds and there will be an ascension, the rapture that we just heard of, that will have no parallel or will be taken up to be with him. Well, I hope I've convinced you Elijah's great. We could talk so much more about Elijah, but a greater than Elijah is here. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this day. We're thankful for the opportunity to be together, to fellowship, and to think with our minds and with our hearts about the superiority of the Lord Jesus, how great indeed he is. We're thankful for the stories of Elijah, this fantastic prophet, this one who will indeed, in the book of Revelation, as we see, come Another great witness will come in that spirit of Elijah. But we're so thankful that our greater than Elijah is already here and that we know him. Father, bless the rest of our day. We're thankful so much for all the work and all the effort that's gone into preparing this meal for us. We're, we're just blessed with both spiritual and physical food. Help us to be thankful for it. Help us to use our time well and fellowship one with another. Bless it to us, we pray in Jesus' name.